We turn now in God's word together to Matthew chapter 8, picking up in our series where we left off last week, verses 18 through 27. Welcoming again those who are visiting with us as we turn now to God's word. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into his boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us today by his Holy Spirit. A great multitude is gathering as Jesus and his disciples are coming down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. It's springtime, Passover. The crowds have swelled to an enormous number. You see in the gospel accounts that they lay cloaks in the road. They wave palm branches, kids signaling that they believe this is the king that God has promised. Hosanna, save us now, O God. They sing the words of Psalm 118. As Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, he doesn't come, however, as they perhaps would have expected. But he did come as the prophets said he would. Just like Zechariah chapter 9, like we heard earlier, he came on a donkey a grown man on a very small, silly animal, kids. And as we see in our text today, not only did he ride on a donkey in that demonstration of humility, but in his life he had nowhere to lay his head. This text reminds us what our kids are learning in catechism. What kind of life did Christ live? Well, a life of suffering and obedience and humility, a life of poverty, it reminds us that as they're exalting this king, he is not the sort of man, perhaps, that some people think he is. Who is this man? What does it mean to follow him? What kind of king is this? And what does that mean for us, Emmaus Road, today? We see what it means for three potential disciples. We're going to look at Luke 9. There's a third one. But what does it mean for us? First, what is it like to be a disciple of Jesus? The crowds in Matthew 8 have 
gathered to such a number that perhaps there's hundreds or thousands around Jesus. He has healed the sick. He has cast out demons. We saw that last week. And now he's finding that many people are wanting to follow him, perhaps for some of the wrong reasons. So there are three potential disciples here. I'm going to bring out the third one, which comes from Luke 9. And Jesus addresses them. The first guy is a scribe. That means he takes the law of God, he writes it down, and he wants to learn from Jesus. That's a good thing. He wants to sit at his feet. Jesus doesn't say that's unimportant, but he wants this man and us to know discipleship is not a cushy thing. He says, okay, let's talk about animals. Kids, you know about animals. Foxes, you see them sometimes in the park. They go and they grab food and they bring it back and they've got a den to sleep in. Or birds that are flying coming to your bird feeder. They get some seed and they bring it back to their nest. These animals have a place to sleep, a home. But the Son of Man, Jesus says, right out of Daniel 7, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus himself did not have a permanent dwelling place in this world. When he was born, it was in a manger. When he died, it was the tomb of another man. Judea didn't want him. Galilee said no way. The Gadarenes, like last week, cast him out. Samaria wanted nothing to do with him. He had no earthly dwelling. He came from another world. And he's telling this disciple, potential disciple, and us, following Jesus will mean often rejection, suffering, and difficulty. He does not mean that you should get rid of your private property. In the providence of God, some people have much more earthly wealth than others. Wealth is not sinful. But if you follow Jesus, his point is, the world here is not your home. Paul talks about this. We have a citizenship in heaven from which we await a savior. We are pilgrims. We love the life God gave. We love the family that God has provided. The church family here. But we know ultimately God is our dwelling place. Psalm 90. That where he is, there we will be also. When God is our dwelling place, we can leave everything to follow Jesus and still be at home is kind of the point. Jesus tells you, I love you and I have a difficult plan for your life. What is that? Well, self-denial, sacrifice, service, and suffering by the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus is honest with this guy and with us that if we desire to live a godly life in Christ, 2 Timothy, we will be persecuted. Evil people will go from bad to worse, 2 Timothy 3. So we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. We live by faith. Normal eyesight tells us God is far away, he doesn't care. The Psalms talk in honesty about how Psalm 74, God, it's like you have your hand in your pockets. Don't be silent. I'm languishing. The truth is, by faith, God is close. He is near to us. He is in us by his spirit. We need God's grace to have spiritual vision to see that following Jesus is costly, It's also urgent. There's another man who's a potential disciple. 
and he wants to follow Jesus, but he says, first, I got to go bury my dad. Now, literally, does that mean he's on his way to a funeral? Maybe. Or the language of this in that first century could be that he needs to take care of his elderly dad until he dies. When is that? It could be days, months, years. We don't know how old that father is. And Jesus, shockingly, this really surprises us, says, let the dead bury their own dead. He's not saying, don't care for your family. Jesus gave the law. He's God. Jesus kept the law. Honor your father and mother. It's an honoring thing to God and to your grandparents and parents when you care for them in their older age. That's good. But Jesus says, I must come first. Satan may use family to try to draw us away from Christ. Jesus says, following me takes precedence. There's an urgency here. Let the dead bury their own dead. In Luke's gospel, he says, go and proclaim the gospel. As Luther says, I preach as if Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is coming tomorrow. I preach as a dying man to dying men and women. There's an urgency with this. And this man was using his family, perhaps as an excuse. You know, I've got too many family things right now, so I'll get to Jesus when I don't. We love our children, beloved, but do we love Jesus more? The point is, don't put Christ off. Do you know what the devil's favorite word is? Tomorrow. You know, tomorrow I'll go back to church. Tomorrow, I'll trust Christ. Tomorrow, I'll serve that neighbor who's really struggling. Tomorrow, if this man waited until his father died, he might never become a disciple. Jesus is reminding us of the grace of the Spirit of God in repentance. Father, forgive me for my lack of love, my prayerlessness, my wasted time, Give me by the Spirit more fervor, more zeal, more committed constancy so I'm not so up and down and back and forth. How does this happen? By looking to Christ, the cross. You were bought with a price. You're loved by God. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Following Jesus is costly, urgent. It's decisive. In Luke 9, there's another man who says, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me say bye to my parents at home. Which sounds perhaps the most, well, yeah, he's going to, of course, say okay, right? Well, that passage in Luke 9, when that man says this, he's bringing up language from 1 Kings. When Elijah asked Elisha and called upon him to be his disciple, and Elisha says, yeah, I'm going to first go and kiss mom and dad goodbye, and then I'll follow you. And was that okay? Yeah, of course it was. It was good. He went and he did that, and he had a feast and slaughtered oxen, reminding me a little bit of Bilbo Baggins' farewell birthday party. Let's go have a feast, and then we go. Yeah, that was good. But Jesus is saying, you know what? 
Don't go tell your parents goodbye. Why? I am greater than Elijah and Elisha. I'm God in the flesh. I'm the pearl of great price. I'm everything you treasure and need the most. I'm worth it all. Don't look back. Don't long for your former life of sin. Don't, like an indecisive, divided heart, like Lot's wife, think, well, that was better. Or Egypt had leeks and cucumbers, as Israel said. Don't go back to the vomit of the dog. Jesus here is saying the cost of discipleship is urgent, it's decisive. He who began this good work in you will carry it to completion, Emmaus wrote. The goal is Christ's likeness, that we might be presented mature in Christ. Who is this man? Who says things like this, right? Secondly, Jesus is going to show the disciples who are following him a glimpse into his glory. He's going to test their faith. We see now, having seen Jesus talk to these potential disciples, that he's going to get into a boat. They found one of these boats a few years back that would fit maybe about 12 men. They're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. It would take about two hours. And typically, as it's evening, they would all be exhausted, including Jesus. It's been a long day. The Sea of Galilee is up north. The Dead Sea is down south. The Jordan River connects them. They are the two lowest bodies of water in the world, 700 feet below sea level. Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. So there are strange weather patterns and ravines that come up very suddenly in this part of the world. Mark's gospel adds a detail that only an eyewitness would add, Peter is the eyewitness. And it says there were other boats with him. So like a flotilla, Jesus is exhausted, but the crowd continues to surround him. Mark tells us, suddenly, without warning, there's a terrific storm. We read it in Matthew 8 as well. Literally, like someone is shaking the lake. A sea quake. Waves that are crashing over the boat. The boat is about to be swamped. They're being thrashed around. The professional fishermen are panicking. If you're on an airplane and the pilot panics, you know that's not a good sign. These guys are the professionals. Nothing should rattle them, right? They pass the point where they are in control. At least they think they are. And where do they find Jesus? children. He's sleeping. This is a squall. How is he asleep? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he pay attention? Is he that removed from us? No. This tells us something profound. Jesus has had a long day. Healing, teaching, casting out demons. Jesus is truly human and truly God. He's not a yes man. As someone told me recently, he he has a no button. (laughs) Meaning, 
He didn't say yes to everyone all the time about everything. He came to serve, to give his life a ransom for many? Yeah. But he needed time to pray, to rest, to sleep. Some of you today are dead tired. You think, when am I going to get a rest? Well, today's the Sabbath day. Thank God for this. You are so tired from going nonstop, and right now you have a Savior who knows what it's like to be this exhausted. He's touched with the feeling of your weakness. He embraces you. He loves you. He knows what it's like to be truly human. Every sinless human emotion he has. Everyone. He has amazement at the faith of the centurion. We saw that. Compassion and love for sinners and sufferers. That's your Savior. As he's sleeping, this tells us of something else. In the Old Testament, to sleep in times of trouble is an amazing gift of the protective power of God. Some of you maybe didn't sleep last night. Some of you maybe have struggled with sleep on and off for years. It's an affliction, a suffering that many have. It's not just you go to sleep for some people. For others, you think, your spouse, how do they sleep like that? The baby's screaming and they're asleep. (laughs) Psalm 4, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Peace and sleep is a gift of God. And here is Jesus, the true Israel, resting in God's protective power, sleeping through this storm. And you see what wakes him up? Not a wave that splashes in his face, but the cries of his disciples. They didn't go up to him and nudge him, but they did maybe more what you boys might do to your brother. Mom and dad say, he's got to get up. You go, get up. You, you push him. You, you, you try to get him, get him moving. They are shouting. The gospels say probably at the same time, Lord, Master, save us. We're about to die. You're going to die too. That might be what they're thinking. And they forgot like we often do. The Lord's never failing care for them. They were so wrong at this point, and we are so much like them. Jesus said, I will bring you to the other side of the lake. They doubted this. The storm came, they panicked, and they forgot of God's protective care. Does this remind you of someone asleep on a boat with a storm? Who comes to your mind, kids? Jonah. Jonah, who is running away from God, who is disobeying, who is helpless in the face of the storm. Well, loved ones, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus arose. He rebuked the wind. Storm, be muzzled. And immediately, it's calm. A mighty miracle. The lake is as smooth as a mirror. This is a man 
who is subject to all manner of human weakness. He's truly human. This is God in the flesh who has power over the storm. And he speaks to the waves. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this account of the Gospels. Maybe it's the hundredth or thousandth time. Do you wonder why he speaks to the waves? Any golfers out there? You hit your shot and you, you talk to the ball. Get down. The putt, slow down. Hit a house. Hit the brakes. Carlton Fisk, 1975. He's willing the ball to go fair against the Reds. Stay fair. We sometimes do this to stuff. Silly, right? Why does Jesus speak to the storm? Can the storm hear him? Not that the lake has any perception, Calvin says, but to show the power of his voice over everything that he's created. The disciples observe this and they say, what sort of man is this? They knew the Old Testament. Psalm 107, the sailor's psalm. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. There's no such thing as mother nature, children. The laws of nature are God's laws. Nature is not personified with a personality. God is sovereign over every snowflake and every tornado and every drought and every squall and storm. The Bible doesn't allow us to call Jesus a great man or a prophet or an example. No. He is God in the flesh, the God who spoke and created the world out of nothing, including underneath 400 miles below us, vast waters that Genesis talks about of the deep. He created those two. He is creator God. His power is beyond comprehension. He has kingly power, and he has amazing grace because he's teaching the disciples in us something here. The disciples in the storm in Mark 4 said, Jesus, don't you care? Jesus says in gentleness as he calms the storm, where is your faith? Their panic overwhelmed their faith. They just looked around them. In today's world, they're just looking at the news all the time. They're seeing what's wrong here and there and what could go wrong here and what might happen there. And they're panicking. They assume Jesus doesn't know, doesn't care, or can't do anything about it. The Bible compares the troubles of life to the perils of the sea. And many are facing storms today. Sinclair Ferguson, in 2012, preached a sermon. You can see the title there. When what you've always dreaded actually happens. He says it refers in our lives to the thing that we most fear might happen. At different stages of life, it might be different. Kids, it might be not getting into the school you hope to get into. Not marrying the person you want to marry. Not making the basketball team. It might be marrying someone that you think you shouldn't be married to. 
It might be as kids, you hear mom and dad yelling at night. You hear them going after each other, and you're insecure, and you think, do they love each other, and will they stay married? That might be in your heart right now, kids. It might be a shocking diagnosis, cancer. It might be losing a job. It might be a friend that betrays you, a spouse that betrays you. It might be someone telling you the news you never wanted to hear. Your loved one is dead. It's a time for weeping, Ecclesiastes says. And it's a time today to weep with our brothers and sisters in Nashville. The horror of this last Monday, the evil, the wickedness, the Job-like catastrophe. It's Ephesians 6. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. As one man says, we can almost be numb as we hear these things, can't we? Over and over. Except when we remember that the hand that holds you has a nail hole through it. You have a suffering Savior who is now glorified, who holds all things in the palm of his hand. What do you fear the most? For those men on that Boat, it might have been a storm like this. It's easy to feel strong in faith when the water is calm. The testing of our faith is when storms hit, right? Easy to talk about this as a pastor. Oh, wow. Oh, it's easy. But another thing to believe what the Word of God says. In the midst of things we dread the most... One man says, fear is by its nature and interpretation of life. Situation plus self plus God. I look at the situation, I look at my ability or inability, and I add to that who I think God is and what I think he's doing. And the result is either faith and hope and courage and love and rest and peace or panic and fear. Beloved, is our life characterized by more worry than it should have? Given our confession of faith in a sovereign God, it shouldn't be that way. Maybe we play in our minds, what if? Okay, if this happens, then. If this didn't happen, then. We need to remember who it is that got the disciples in this mess in the first place. Whose idea was it, kids? Peter's? Matthew? It was Jesus. He said, let's get in the boat, let's go to the other side. Ferguson, if Peter was reflecting on the storm after, he would have said, we didn't realize it at the time, but we were not in that storm accidentally. With Jesus, nothing happens accidentally, loved ones. Nothing good or bad. Yes, we're responsible. But the doctrine of providence is a remedy for anger and impatience in our lives. Why did Jesus lead them into the storm? Because faith, as one person says, is not a hot house plant. Our faith doesn't thrive in spiritual greenhouses. Faith is a perennial, a hardy perennial. It flourishes when it is exposed to the elements. 
Without trials in our life, we would be insufferably self-centered, wouldn't we? Shallow, proud. Jesus loves you. It's not that he is mad at you, but when you follow him, you will follow him through storms. The Holy Spirit led Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Our life is patterned after his, and most of us have little awareness Ferguson says, of how much or little we are trusting Christ when things are going well. He says, what we might be trusting is that things are going well. It's when they begin not to go well, when stuff crashes around us, that it becomes clear whether we trust the Lord. Jesus leads them in the storm to expose their hearts. There's no place to hide in a boat, on the Sea of Galilee, with a sea quake. Nowhere to hide. Kevin DeYoung, after the murders of this last week, wrote, the Christian life is a fight of faith, especially in the face of calamity and evil. God is almighty. He is faithful. Is that hard to believe? After six lives were shot down in that evil? Yes, he said. That's why it's called the fight of faith. We need the whole Bible, the depth of Christ's sympathy for us, the height of God's providence. God never leaves you, Emmaus. He never forsakes you. Nothing separates you from his love in Christ. This God in whose hand are all creatures and things is your Father. He is more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. That's important. God will bring you all the way home. The story doesn't end with Jonah in the whale, does it? Or with Jesus in the tomb. One of our problems in life is that we often live as if we're going to go on living forever. It's not true, is it? Our lives are fragile. We are dependent on God every moment. And it's the sudden storms that sometimes wake us out of our sleep. Our spiritual sluggishness. We're sleeping, not God. Jesus rebukes the storm. How do the disciples respond? They're frightened by the storm. Luke tells us they're even more frightened now. But now it's a fear of the Lord. They're filled with awe. Who is this man? The wind and the waves obey him. He's more wonderful than you can understand. The storm brought them to see the glory of Jesus. This is the one to whom we must go. It's a heartfelt trust and fear of the Lord that has the power to defeat lesser fears in our lives, like the fear of man. Peter freaked out that day. He panicked on the boat. In Acts 12, as Herod is going to put Peter to death, Peter's in prison, chained between two soldiers. And what's he doing? He's sleeping. Sleeping so soundly that an angel had to wake him. The grace and the spirit of God in Peter's life who said, 
Rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may be glad when his glory is revealed. This storm, loved ones, teaches us about God. Ferguson's question, how do you know Jesus cares when the thing you feared would happen has happened? Maybe it's happening to you right now. Maybe it has happened. Maybe it will. How do you know he cares? Because the Jesus who is in the storm was destined for a storm of his own. He underwent the storm of the cross, bearing our sin, the justice and the judgment and the wrath we deserve. He earned it all in his life. He suffered in our place in his death. He rose from the dead and reminds us that the greatest storm in our life is not out there. It's in here. It's my sin. The waves of my sin. And like the disciples in the boat, I have no ability to defeat this. But Christ has come and he has died for that. Your past sin, your present sin, your future sin. He gives you hope when you're afraid. Perfect love drives out hope, Emmaus. If we could grasp how much God loves us, enough to die in our place, if we understood how mighty he is to fling galaxies into space, fear would take its proper shape and size. Fear of the Lord. So what happened to those three potential disciples? Do you wonder? We don't know. We know nothing of their names or what happened after Jesus spoke to them. The question for us today, Emmaus wrote, is where is our faith? Do you know the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of God's love for you? Jesus wants you to look not to the strength of your faith as much as to the object of your faith. He wants you to look to him. That's what he wanted the disciples to do. Christ saves you through faith. We are beyond our strength and wisdom. We need to cast ourselves on Jesus, the anchor of our soul. God, give us grace to trust you, to take Jesus as he is to lead us through the storm. He'll show us things about ourselves we couldn't have imagined are true. And we will know that he cares in a way that is beyond what we can comprehend, his love. We know who he is. He's not asleep now, is he? He's ascended. He's glorified. He doesn't get weary. But he understands and sympathizes with you in your weariness. He tirelessly watches over every moment of your day and night, your sleep and your sleeplessness. Nothing has escaped his eternal gaze. Nothing can separate you from his love. Who is this man? It is the God-man. He is the Lord. He is your Savior. He is your King. We trust him. What do we need today to grasp this more deeply? The wonder of who Jesus is, his power, his greatness, his love, his compassion, his beauty, his glory, his grace, his forgiveness. Emmaus wrote, let not your heart sink into fear and despair. Even when what you have always dreaded happens. Amidst the thorns and the wickedness of this present evil age, you have an unshakable hope in Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who will see you through every storm, 
the one who endured the storm of the judgment of God for you, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who meets with us now as we come to feed and to be nourished by him and his Holy Spirit, by faith through the Lord's Supper. Amen.